Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Verses 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir? But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look, toward heaven and count the stars. If you're able to count them, then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know what I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. But he did not cut the the birds in two, And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know this this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the, of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great rivers of the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenesites, the Camonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. 
the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we are in this moment of silence and reflection, give us ears to hear what you might say to us. We approach this ancient text, some of us believing, others unbelieving, questioning, cynical, most of us somewhere in between. Some of us feel so close to you right now and are filled with expectation or anticipation as We trust and hope as you move in our lives. Others of us seem to remember a time when you seemed so close and now you seem a million miles away. And we're wondering what happened to you or maybe what happened to us, wondering if we can believe these things ever again. As we listen to this ancient text with names that are literally foreign and difficult to pronounce and seem miles and and lives away, help us to see that the themes remain the same, themes of questioning and doubt themes of calling and uncertainty, themes of courage and of fear. We approach this story from so many different backgrounds, and yet really we have far more in common than we realize. Each of us is beautiful, created in your image and likeness, bearing your dignity, your honor, your beauty, your significance, and at the same time each of us is fractured, fallen, broken, Maybe we'd say the world's not the way it's supposed to be or we're not the way we're supposed to be. But however we find ourselves, help us to see that you see us in all our beauty and our brokenness. You know us and your response is to give yourself to us in sacrificial, self-giving love. Help us to receive that love now. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed. And send us out to be your very hands and feet of renewal wherever we go. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, please be seated. So with Halloween coming up on a Sunday, the, the Nault family, along with our extended family, is really celebrating a longer Halloween season here. Last night we did what we call Hamuloween, as we went out to Hamul to Florence's parents' house and had trick-or-treating on their rather large piece of land that they have out there. And Hamulaween has multiple stages. You know, at one point we set up some jack-o'-lanterns outside and each of the grown-ups has candy for the kids. But we also found an innovative way to utilize our old RV that we keep parked out there in Hamul. And we turned it into an RV scare house where the kids enter through the front door, walk down the aisle getting terrified, and then they make their way out the back door of the RV as they go on with their night. And this Scarefest has multiple stages because we have small children all the way up to Three Hole Punch Jim, who you all met at the beginning of the service. And you have to kind of tailor the fright to each of the children. But last night it came to me, and the general idea, because Florence had introduced, she had found somehow two gorilla outfits, full outfits. So you, like, when life gives you lemon, you make lemonade. When all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you have gorilla outfits... That's going to be the punchline of the scary part of the RV. It has to be. How do you not use that? So 
All I had was a bottle of ketchup and a red sweatshirt and a wig, so I figured out what to do with that. I'll tell you in a sec. Here's how it went. They came in the front door, and there was a light on me as I'm sitting in a lawn chair kind of toward the back of the RV with ketchup all over my face, looking quite grotesque and gory, my, my wig on, and, and I'm saying, kids, kids, the apes are out. I'm hiding one of my arms as the sleeve hangs limply, and I say, give me a hand, I need to find them. And these kids, terrified, wide-eyed, are standing there frozen while my brother-in-law is behind them, they don't know it, and gives them the first fright of the entire night. As they recover and their heart rate drops by three beats a minute, it's time for them to go outside the RV where the gorillas then jump out after them and terrify them. It's amazing. I mean, it is so much fun. It's, it's like pure, unadulterated, raw fear going on in these kids. It's like, I, yeah, anyways, you're like, Matt, I don't know why you're the pastor of this church. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. Um, here's, here's what was the significant part for me, though. In addition to all of that, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I have to think about the deeper part of it. It's one of the occupational hazards. As we're having dessert later on that night, I was talking with my nephew, who is six or seven years old, about courage. And he goes, but I was afraid. And I said, courage is, is what you have when you are afraid. You, you're afraid, but you keep moving forward anyways because you trust that you're going to be okay. That's courage. What I find fascinating is that therapists and psychologists talk about the, the messages that are imprinted as a child stick with us as we grow older. The lessons that we learn stick with us as we grow older. And the patterns of behavior and belief Stick with us as we grow older. And so what we just read in Genesis 15 is actually a grown-up version of that story where Abram is afraid. He's terrified. He doesn't know how to move forward, and he has this moment of courage. So here's the question it asks. Right now, at this particular place in your life, how do you move forward when the way forward seems uncertain? where it seems scary, where it's unknown, where you can't see around the corner to the future and yet you know that the way to move is to continue going forward. How do you move forward when you feel unmotivated or out of fuel? How do you move forward as a person of resilience and hope? See, Abram's facing multiple fears at this moment, and he mentions them in Genesis 15. We'll unpack all this, but on one hand, there's this fear of provision. Is God going to give me all the things that I need? And we're talking food, clothing, and shelter, not a Ferrari 458 Italia and a house on the hills in La Jolla. He just wants to know he's going to make it. God, what if I don't make it? Because remember, he's already left his father's household, the land that he knows, and all of his resources. To go where? To a land I will show you. What if, I don't make, what if I don't have enough? Secondly, he says, I need an heir. Which here we have, you know, you can set up a will and a family trust and all sorts of ways of succession of wealth and things like that. But in this ancient Near Eastern patriarchal culture, the way you passed on your name, your wealth, and your identity was through your heir. Unfortunately, it was through your firstborn son. And he has none of that. So on one hand, he's afraid, will I have enough? And secondly, even if I had enough... I wouldn't have anyone to leave it to. And my timeline, the timeline of my name ends right here. So he's dealing with resources and significance. Do you ever deal with resources and significance? What's this all about? What am I going to do tomorrow? How will I have enough? 
And it's interesting that God responds in these three different ways. Um, he says, look back, verse 7, I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I brought you out of a place into this place. I've been with you. So this isn't an empty promise. I actually have a track record here. You can trust me. He says, look up. Look at the stars and count them if you can. I read the other day that there are 73 sextillion stars that we can see now with the aid of technology. I, I couldn't even tell you how many zeros are in that number. But I'd imagine in the ancient Near Eastern desert with no light pollution, Abram could see at least one or two or 5,000 stars. So that's a lot for someone who doesn't have any children, is concerned about having an heir, and then God says, try to count them and your descendants will outnumber them. He says, look forward. As you see the stars, so shall your descendants be. I will go with you. So as I have brought you out, as I am currently showing you my glory, majesty, and power, I will also go with you and take care of you and provide for you in the future, though you know not what it will look like. This is what biblical trust and biblical faith looks like. This is also a critical text for many reasons, at least two of them. The first one is, this is going all the way back to the original foundational covenant that God made with Abram. I will be your God, you will be my people. Genesis 12, 15, and 18 continues to go on. This is the foundation on which the church is built. This is the foundation on which biblical Christianity develops. This is what it looks like to be a person of faith. So when someone says, you know what I can't stand about organized religion? Is it has all the rules and regulations. You know what I can't stand about the church? Is they tell you all the ways you should feel bad about yourself and they guilt you into behavior modification. You go back to Genesis 15 and say, this is the original charter of the church. This is the original foundation of the church. And what does it say? It doesn't say that God's guilt motivates us. It doesn't say that shame is the best ingredient for behavior modification. It says God's grace always goes first. God is always reaching out to you before you even think about reaching out to God. Does that surprise you? That at the heart of the character of God, at the foundation of the faith, is a covenant of grace. We'll get into that this morning. You see that God's grace is at the center of our identity and calling. I put a quote for you in the worship folder. It's on page two. This comes from a speech that Theodore Roosevelt gave in 1910. He was president from 1901 to 1909. After his presidency, he took a one-year tour in Africa. And then after that, he took kind of a victory lap in Europe. And he ended up in Paris at one of the most elite institutions, the Sorbonne, and he gave a speech that was entitled Citizen in a Republic, which later on, this excerpt of the speech began, became known as The Man in the Arena. Now, sorry, he was a product of his own time. It's, you know, the man in the arena. Let's, t let's understand man to be the man or the woman, the courageous person in the arena. And it's about, it's better to be in the middle of the action, striving and trying and going for it, than just to be the person on the sidelines talking about how they could have done better. Here's what he says. It's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the one who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, 
who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, or who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. This is Teddy Roosevelt talking about the importance of being in the arena. Later, Brene Brown will pick up on this theme and name her first really big book, Daring Greatly, because of this particular passage. It resonates with us because life is an arena. And the question is, in the midst of all the confusion and difficulty and obstacles that you face, what is the response to not either get run over by it or to not give up? To either say, I'm going to be resigned for my life to be the person on the sidelines, just critiquing, being more bitter, more cynical, more disconnected, just watching from the side but never fully being alive. Or just kind of doubling down on all the effort that you're already doing, but you know you've seen a car stuck in the sand before. If you're stuck in the sand and you spin your wheels even faster, you don't go faster. You just get dug more deeply. So is there a third option? Instead of either staying out because of despair or fear, or just frantically ramping up all of the production of energy but not going anywhere, what's the way you get unstuck? How do you move forward with hope? There's another way. And you see, the key to unlocking the whole thing is God's preemptive grace. In Genesis 15, we see Abram in this moment where previously in Genesis 12, he's already heard the invitation, go, I will make you into a great nation. He's already gone through Egypt and shown that Abram is not a person of actual great faith and perfect obedience all the time. In fact, his life is a lot like yours and mine. Two steps forward and one step back. It shows that he has family difficulties and arguments as he and his nephew Lot separate in chapter 13. And then in verse 14, his nephew gets in trouble and Abram comes and has this military victory and rescues him. Moments of faith and moments of faithlessness, moments of connection, and moments of disconnect. And it's at this moment that he comes before God with doubt, with fear, in the midst of what Scripture might call his sin. The sin is just the way that we fall short of the glory of God. This is someone who, in chapter 12, sold his wife out to Pharaoh, and in chapter 13, walked away from his family member. So in the mess of his life, and here's really the core of what we're going to talk about this morning, God deals with his doubt and his failure with tenderness, with challenge, and with grace. First, with tenderness. In the midst of all Abram's frailty and failure, we see that he's just like us. And in the midst of all that, God doesn't say, how dare you? God doesn't say, after all I've done for you, I brought you this far, but this is the final one and I can't go any further with you because you have sinned away your day of grace. My love expires at this point. That never enters the conversation. God doesn't abandon him. In fact, what does God say? Verse 1. Don't be afraid. I am your very great reward. 
don't be afraid. He doesn't say don't be afraid because it's not that bad. Don't be afraid you got it wrong, but you're not as bad as the person down the street from you because I, I grade on the curve. You should feel better about yourself. He doesn't say don't be afraid because after all, you are pretty physically strong, good looking, you have a good education. You're going to land on your feet. You'll be fine. You're well connected. He says don't be afraid, not because of you. Don't be afraid because of me because I'll be with you. It just hit me that in that scene in the RV last night where we were trying to terrify, you know, terrify and scare these children, the quickest way to give them courage was if you sent a trusted adult in with them to walk through the RV. Because they knew that, hey, they know what they're doing. I'm going to be okay. Maybe that magnified times infinity is a picture of God saying, I'll go with you through the terrifying parts of your life, and you're going to be okay. Also, this scripture is specifically honest about the fact this is not going to be an easy journey. Abram wants quick results. God says, this is going to take 400 years. It's not a bait and switch. It's not once you believe and trust in God, your life gets better by and by every day until it's up to infinity, stairway to heaven. Not at all. You still walk through the travails and difficulties of this life, but you do it with a God who is your great reward, who will never leave you or forsake you. And that makes all the difference. You know, this is the stuff of great relationships. This is why we cheer at weddings when two spouses get together and make vows, I will be with you forever, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, till death do us part. And we cheer and we celebrate because there's part of you that was designed for that kind of love. This is why it breaks your heart when you see those relationships come undone. This is why it delights a child to be in the arms of a healthy grown-up who loves them and cares for them and protects them. And this is why it breaks our heart and it breaks our lives when those relationships become abusive. You were built for that kind of love. This is the stuff of the best friendships and the best relationships. And yet, in the midst of our fracturedness, it becomes so frustrating. You ever notice that the closer someone is to you, the more power they have to hurt you? If a stranger at the beach tells you you're ugly, you say, get away from me. You're weird. Get, go. If, you know, if a friend tells you you're ugly, it really hurts. If a parent tells a child they're ugly, they've got to go to therapy for years and years and years. The closer someone is to you, the more power they have to hurt you and the more power they have to bring you to greatness. When you're feeling frail or weak about yourself, they can say, I know you better than anybody, and you can do it, and I'll be with you. It gives you a new resilience in your life. The point is, we were built for faithful, committed relationship in all levels. And God is saying, maybe you were built with that. Could, could, you go, could you conceive of the idea, the reason you crave that so much, the reason why high schoolers will go and viol violate all sorts of values and goals they have in their life just to fit into the group, and we don't get much better at it as we become adults? It's because you're yearning for that kind of love deep down. And God says, you already have it. The hardest thing for you to do is to accept it. My grace always goes first. But beyond that, it also then says that the key to unlocking all this is not Abram's faithfulness, like Abram's ability to believe and trust and get it right all the time through obedience. The key to unlocking it is the object of his faith. It's not that Abram has this great faithfulness. It's that Abram can trust in a great God who would never leave him or forsake him. 
This is what we celebrate when we have baptisms up here, especially when we baptize little children. And you'll see me hold this child as they're being baptized into the covenant of God's grace, into God's covenantal family, and I will say, for you, little one, Christ came into this world. For you, he died, and for you, he rose again. For you, little one, Christ did all this, though you know nothing of it yet. We love because Christ first loved us. And so a Christian, whether you were baptized as an infant or a grown-up or somewhere in between, constantly goes back to that covenant. When it feels like life is rising and falling and turning left and turning right, and you say, the truth of the matter is, I exist in the midst of a grace and a love that would never let me go. How would your life be different if tomorrow that's the loudest voice you hear? When you think about your responsibilities or your relationships at work, when you think about the questions that you have, the difficulties you're facing, to hear that voice of grace say, I see you and know you, and I'm your great reward. Notice it's in present tense, I am. You will hear that word echoed throughout Scripture. I am presently in the midst of your life. He deals with them with tenderness. I love that this, we get to experience this in our community group when we begin every group by saying, you know, we're all in different places of our spiritual journey as we share and explore these scriptures and we discuss our lives. There's no pressure for you to share, but if you want to, you're invited to share as authentically as you feel comfortable. And then we begin sharing our real experiences of life together, both the achievements and the fears. And it's at that moment that we actually endear ourselves to each other. This kind of grace in your life then can make you become the safest, most approachable person in your community. You can always tell the people who've experienced this kind of grace because they have a humble confidence that doesn't hold it over everybody else, but then you actually become someone who's accessible. Someone who when they fail and they see you coming down the hallway, they don't have to run and hide from you. They can say, hey, can I have a moment with you? <laughs> I need to tell you something that's going on in my life right now. Because then you become a conduit of that kind of healing, renewing grace for others. It also means you don't have to fix anybody else. When you become a Christian, you do not get your medical license to be the doctor for everybody around you with all the right advice, all the right prescriptions, all the ways they need to do everything. You've experienced Christians like that, and I apologize on their behalf. Because there's only one good physician in Scripture. His name's Jesus. But as a Christian, then, you can patiently walk with people through their difficulties, bearing witness to it, making sure that they're never alone, and trusting that God is at work in their life. You don't need to be the Savior of the world. You could trust Him to be at work in the midst of all of it. You see how trusting in God in this way both accentuates the seriousness with which you approach life, like it sophisticates everything, you're more present, you're more active, you're more engaged, and... You can also relax. You can take it easy because God is at work. It's both at the same time. Makes you both confident and humble. Makes you both active and able to take a Sabbath rest and trust that God is at work even when you're not. He deals with them with tenderness. That's how he deals with you. He also deals with Abram with challenge. And you see this throughout Scripture. There's always this third way that God goes about a healing path for you and me in the midst of our fear and doubt and rebellion. 
See, one way would just be to crush the rebellion, and then you just get crushed. That's no good. The other way would be to give up and give in and say, have it your way. I'm going to be an enabler, and that's no good for you either. But there's this third way of both tenderness and challenge together. Later, when Moses comes before Yahweh, the burning bush scene, and he's about to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. God has had enough. No more slavery. We're going to freedom. And the first thing Moses says to God is, who are you that you should be giving me this calling? And God works with him. Then Moses throws up another flag. Well, who am I that I should be good enough to go on this calling? And God works with him even then, patiently. Then Moses says, well, what if they won't believe me? God continues to work with Moses. Finally, Moses says, send somebody else. And God sends Aaron to go with Moses. Accommodate, both meeting him, challenging him, and accommodating him along the journey. Years and years later, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery in Palestine, in Jerusalem, would be brought before Jesus at the hands of the authorities, the religious authorities who had it in their documentation that such a crime was punishable by death. There's no question about her guilt. There's no question about what she's done. The question is, what should we do about it? What does God do about our brokenness? Because the religious authorities are ready to put this person to death. And Jesus says, let ever who has not sinned throw the first stone. And the religious authorities evaporate slowly as they trickle away. And finally, Jesus says, does nobody condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. He says, then neither do I. And then he says, go and sin no more. It's both. Tenderness and challenge. And that's how he deals with Abram. He meets him in the midst of his questions and he says, but I'm still sending you. Where right now do you need both tenderness and challenge? Where do you need to be redirected? Now here's the thing. The reason why we did point one before point two is because if all you see is redirection and challenge, you will run from that version of God because that God is a taskmaster. That God is a micromanager. That God is a despot or a tyrant. You will not trust the redirection until you can see how tender and loving he is with you. But finally, and this really is the great crescendo, this is both the most difficult to, to read part of this passage with all the, the five animals and being split in two and all that, and it's actually where the power in the passage is. And hats off to Isela for reading it so well. God deals with Abram's doubt and brokenness and rebellion with grace. And here's where you see it. Verse 9 is a verse that is really weird to us. If you're paying attention, if, you, if that's not weird to you, you are not paying attention. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, turtle, dove, young pigeon, brought them all, cut them in two, laying each half against the other, but the birds he did not cut. And it gives the detail that the, the birds of prey came in, the vultures came in, and he had to shoo them all away. So you have these five animals, three of which are cut in half, with an aisle going down the middle, and then the birds are still in one piece. What in the world is going on here? It's actually part of an ancient ritual that anybody in the first audience would have been familiar with. There's documentation of a Middle Eastern treaty that was put together between the king of Assyria and the king of Arpad, which is a place in 
Syria. And the way it worked together was they actually brought in a lamb and they separated it in two. And then the lower king, so they're saying, look, this will be my territory, this will be my, this will be my land, these will be my resources, and in response, we'll give you military protection. So a big king and a little king would make a treaty. And then they would take an animal and they would act out the treaty. They would separate it into two, and the littler king with the less power, in this case of the Middle Eastern Treaty, King Arpad, would walk between the lamb that was split in two and would be forced to pray a prayer. They actually have it written down that went like this. May the same thing happen to me as happened to this animal if I do not keep my commitment. Okay, they're acting out the treaty. But notice the power differential. It's always the big king and the little king, and the little king makes the promises because the big king doesn't have to. It's part of the beauty of access and power and advantage. So overlay that with what's happening here. You have the animals split in two. And God comes in this terrifying evening vision with the flaming pot and the smoke, which are other ways that God is envisioned throughout the Old Testament, and passes between the two an- the animals. Who walks between the animals? God. God says, Abram, if I don't come through on my promises for you, may I come undone. May I be torn apart. So on one hand, it's revolutionary that the big king, in this case the creator of the universe, Yahweh, would even entertain the idea of putting himself or herself, God's self, on the line to walk between these animals. But Abram must have been terrified at this point, thinking, I've got to walk through them next. I'm about to make a huge promise, and I don't know if I can keep it. It reminds me in a more whimsical way of years and years ago when I had just moved to San Francisco, I had made a friend named Tag who was on the San Diego Padres at the time. Tag Bozade. What a great name that is. And Tag was in San Francisco. Padres were playing the Giants. He was on the injured reserve list. I had nothing to do. It was 2004. Florence and I weren't married yet. She still lived in San Diego. I had no money. I had no friends. It was like a cold, dark September day in San Francisco. I know as San Diegans, you can't imagine September being cold and dark. San Franciscans fully understand. And I got a call from Tag saying, hey, I'm, I'm not playing today. I'm on the side. I'm actually in the stands. I put a uh, ticket for you at Will Call. Come sit with me. So I sat with him and watched the game with all the other families of the players. And afterwards, we went to the restaurant right there by the Willie Mays gate. And it's like half the San Diego Padres team is standing in this restaurant, and I'm with them. They're all in a circle. I'm, the, I'm by far the smallest person there. And each of them was taking turns paying for the next round of whatever food or drinks everybody wanted. And like every bill that was being paid was like the, the tab for a small wedding reception. You know? So the first person, hey, what's everybody want? Well, I want this, I want that. And then the bill comes for hundreds of dollars and he pays it. We're there for hours. The next guy, the next, and it's coming to me. I had no money. I mean, tags... The gold chain that Tag was wearing was worth more than everything I made that year, <laughs> or this year. And, and I just say to him, hey, I see that I'm one away. I'm thinking, like, I'm going to run for the door. Tag, I can't afford this. He goes, don't worry, I, I got you. I'll take care of mine, and then I'll take care of yours. Totally let me off the hook. I got to stay. I didn't have to run in fear. That is a dim example of a, what I would imagine Abram is experiencing at this point. 
God has just gone first. And now it's his turn to say, I will put myself on the line if I don't fulfill my part of our covenant here. If I don't go, if I don't trust you, if I don't walk with you, if I double-cross you, if any of that happens, I'm going to have to come undone like these animals came undone, and I don't want that to happen. So notice what happens next. Look who doesn't walk between the animals. Abram. In other words, in this moment, in this covenant of grace, you have God saying, if I don't keep my promises as a trustworthy God who is your reward, who walks with you, if I fail in any of that, may I come undone. And if you don't fulfill your part of the covenant, of the promise, of the relationship, I'll come undone for that as well. Laying the ancient foundation of the covenant where thousands of years later we read the rest of the story, this unbelievable one-sided covenant that points us to Jesus. Jesus who on the cross, as darkness descends upon the earth, as he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As they roll dice to take his clothing, as they pierce his side, as he gives his life on behalf of humanity, God coming undone for the ways that we've wandered. God coming undone, taking the effects of our sin and brokenness and rebellion upon himself, taking it all the way down to the point of death. Being crucified outside the city so that we might be brought to the inside. Being cut off from the Father so that we might know the welcome of family. Doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. God told Abram, I would rather die than see you cut off from me. And in Christ, God did exactly that. But the story doesn't end there. If the story ended there, Jesus would be one more great, loving teacher who was misguided, had thoughts of grandiosity, and died. There are other stories like that in the pages of history. Three days later, he rose again from the dead. You can go to the burial place of any major world religious leader in history. You cannot go to a place where they can show you Jesus' bones because it doesn't exist. They'll take you to the chapel of the resurrection showing you that God not only takes the brokenness of this world but God has the power to do something about it. That the final word on this world is not your lostness but your foundness. The final word on your life is not that you have to get it right and do it on your own, but God comes and rescues you and does for you what you could never do for yourself. This is why you could be both confident and humble at the same time. This is why we make God's grace the foundation of our identity and calling. This is why a Christian's called to reflect that kind of grace out into this world. And as you do, this world will be transformed. As you do you'll be transformed. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you'd help us to receive the kind of grace that we're meditating on this morning, a grace that breaks through all of our obstacles and fear, doubt, and questions, and wandering, because you are the great reward. Help us to see that long before we were thinking about you, you were thinking about us, and help us to respond with lives of grace and trust and hope and joy. We pray these things. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.
Friends, we continue now with the time of offering, and offering is an act of worship as it's an opportunity for us to say, all that I have is a gift from God. So I give generously and joyfully and sacrificially from what God's already given me. It also means you're never called to give out of compulsion or guilt or manipulation. Always freely, always joyfully. It's also an act of mission because everything that we give in person and online throughout the week funds this church's mission to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world. So in a moment, Ben will be bringing by, if you'd like to contribute to the offering today, you can also do it online using your smartphone through the church's website. It's all encrypted and secure and all of that. And the other thing I'll say about offering is it goes far beyond our finances. It's a way of thinking about our entire lives. How do you respond to God's grace in your life by giving yourself toward others? So with all that in mind, let's commit our offering to God as we're on page 7 together praying. Holy One, Bless our offerings and transform them into healing for the wounded, hope for the disheartened, courage for the frightened, and faith for the embittered. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.